This podcast is a peek behind the curtain for those of us who never had the pleasure of serving America in uniform. And we seek to highlight the pride, privilege, benefit, and sometimes sacrifice of that service that's unique to just 1% of the citizenry. While usually appreciated and often revered, their service is foreign to most, yet they represent threads woven into the very fabric of our culture. These are their stories. These are their demons. These are their lessons. This is the Carry the Load podcast. So to sort of set the table, I, I had a very fun, successful naval career. Um, I was a naval flight officer. Um, I, my opinion, the best airplane for an NFO is the A6 Intruder, right? Because you're out low altitude at night in the mountains, so you can't do that with your eyes closed. As an FO. As an NFO, yeah. Explain I, to people what that is. So uh, uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, most airplanes were two-seat or four-seat four aircraft. Mm-hmm. The one everybody knows is Top Gun, right? Uh, F-14 pilot in the front, radar intercept officer, weapons officer in the back. And the A-6 intruder, pilot sat on the left, bombardier navigator sat on the right. So my job was to uh, guide the aircraft through mountainous terrain, high speed, low altitude at night. That's the A-6 mission, bombs on target on time. So that was number one. Then I got to come back to be a flight instructor. So now you're flying like crazy, great time. Then I, I get the luck of a draw and get selected to work with the Blue Angels as number eight. Flew in the backseat of the uh, two-seat F-18 Hornet. Then I drive John F. Kennedy as the assistant navigator. Okay, back then there was 14 aircraft carriers. So there's only 14 assistant navigators in the U.S. Navy. So I was one of them. And then the last thing, I, I was flag aide to a four-star who reported to Colin Powell for 18 months. So I, I, I want to talk specifically about your time in the Blue Angels. Okay. You had a, a very, very unique experience in that you were one of a very small number of mm-hmm. people who get to experience being a Blue Angel. Mm-hmm. And really, there's probably only three or four new Blue Angels each year. Is that Yeah, the, half, the, the, half the team um, trades out. So the old guys uh, train the new guys. So... The opposing solo, so the, the opposing solo moves to the lead solo, and he trains, or her, she, or he, so far, trains the new opposing solo. The left wingman goes into the slot and trains the new left wingman, and the slot and the boss train the new number two, and then the, new, the old number two and the slot train the new boss. Yes. Then you have two more aviators, number seven and number eight. I was number eight. They fly in the two-seat F-18 uh, and go set up shows and all, and all that. And of course, the narrator narrates the show. Um, okay, so you were, you were the number eight. Correct. Only naval flight officer on the team. That's, that's the naval flight officer billet for the, for the team. Okay, and so as the naval flight officer mm-hmm. for the team, mm-hmm. how is that different? than the aviator in the seat controlling the plane? Um, the way I would characterize my job, I was responsible for everything from landing to takeoff. So when the jets land, then that's when I pop in. Crowd line, go to the debrief. Um, not uncommon to have two or three social commitments, air show weekend. 
Uh, and then, you know, from getting everybody up and out, getting in the caravan, getting to, you know, making sure the cops are there, getting to the air show. Um, and then once debris starts, then it's the air show. Uh, walk down, take off, show, land, then I'm, I'm back again. But you are considered one of the Blue Angels. Even oh, yeah, though absolutely. you're not flying. I'm in a blue suit. Well, I fly in the two-seat F-18. Right. right. So, so seven and eight fly together in the two-seat. Two and from shows, airplane breaks, the, the two-seat is a spare. So if, if I can, I jump in the back seat and go fly with whomever. So I've seen the demo from the one ship, the two ship, the four ship, and the five ship. That would seem to me like that's a little different for if the boss is used to flying alone mm -hmm. in it in number one mm -hmm. um or even you know the slot anybody for that matter you're yeah. used to flying alone now all of a sudden you got some guy in the back seat right you don't want a backseat driver at that point well but you know what some of them like the company <laughs> do they <laughs> well i mean because it's it's a way to show people up close and personal what's going on but would you do this during a show if a jet broke and the two seat went absolutely yeah Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I tell, so, I'll tell you what my, like, just absolute, like, kind of sort of best time in the Navy was. Um, we, unfortunately, we had a mishap, but nobody got hurt, thank God. Um, but, but we lost two airplanes. Two airplanes. Were, were, one we lost and the other one was broken. So the two-seat flew every day. So, and remember, the Blue Angels don't wear G-suits, Right. That's right. I forgot about that. They don't wear G-suits. And mandatory weightlifting. Mandatory weightlifting four or five days a week. So for like a month, I flew every day, twice a day with the lead solo. What a rip in his backseat. But oh my goodness. I mean, it was just, it, it, I think I was what, 23, I guess I was 31. So you're, I mean, you're just at that age where you're, you know, you're in the best shape of your life. You know, your bones are real dense. I mean, it, it was, it was, un, I mean, I, I can't even, you see how excited I am. I can't even describe how much fun it was. Yeah, and you're, you're flying, you're, you're flying in, in the solo uh, yeah. seat. Yep. So did you ever have any close calls? In the blues, no. Um, did I? I, I wouldn't really call them close calls. Have you, did, in the Marine Corps, did you guys talk about the box? Right. Never put yourself in the box. Right. Like you always want to remove one side. Right. So that you don't you don't hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've seen. Three... I, I, I do. But I want you to explain that to people. What does that mean? Fair enough. So the, the box is you never want to fly in the box. So the so the box are three sides. And so you can't get you. You, you can't go forward. And if the fourth side closes. You're either dead or you're swimming or something. So one side would be night. One side would be bad weather. One side would be a bad instrument, right? And so now it's like, what's the other side? If maybe I'm, maybe now I'm running out of fuel. So that's the fourth side. And, yeah. I, and I saw it happen, saw it happen, right? Fourth side. What happened? They ran out of gas. You had to go swimming. Bad weather, thunder, lightning. Couldn't couldn't get to the tanker. Tanker's getting struck by lightning. Couldn't get to the tanker, and so now the the decision point is. I think I have enough gas 
to get home or, or to get, you know, somewhere dry, or I'm going to try to hit the tanker one more time. That was the decision point. So when they made the decision to hit the tanker one more time, that fourth side closed. So I've been in, I've had three sides on me. I normally try to break it down to two, but I've never had four. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that. <laughs> so what, yeah, <laughs> what that what that means is, I mean, it's it's a metaphor for the box you don't want to be in. Exactly, e exactly. So you always try to keep one side open, and again, that one side could just be a decision point that you make, right? You could you could bring that fourth side on yourself, right? So it it it, it becomes critical, you know, to make the right decision. What is what is the one thing that military service taught you that you still implement to this day and mm. you thank the military, your time in the military for that? Right. Uh, there, there are a lot of answers to that question. Um, one that comes to mind, um, I'll, I'll tell the Navy story and then you'll, you'll understand immediately where I'm going. Um, in my first squadron, we, uh, we lost four people in six months. Uh, and and not, not from anybody shooting at us, just training exercises. Um, the, the second crew was the most exp one of the most experienced crews in the squadron. You know, both uh, O4s, major lieutenant commanders, probably combined 5,500 hours in the A6. Uh, and they, they made a lot. It, it, it's a ton. You know, between, you know, two of them, so 25, 27, 50 apiece, that's a lot of flight time. And they made a mistake. And so what that taught me or what that told me was it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. Um, it doesn't matter how much you know or how much more you know than the other person. You can still hurt yourself. What, what was the mood like? when those pilots were lost? Oh my gosh. Um, it, it was tough. I mean, it, but it's weird. You still have to move on. I, I, I think the second one was like, what in the world is going on here? Like, who are these people? Um, I got to, um, I was in the rag as a student and I'm going over to meet my squadron. So I, I had like no downtime at all. Um, I had my last you know, check flight uh, in A6 school. That was on a Thursday. On Sunday, I was on an airplane flying to Signello, Sicily to hang out at SIG, Naval Air Station Signello for like four or five days, helicopter to, his, uh, to an oiler or, or supply ship, supply ship to helicopter to the carrier to meet my squadron. So I'm in base operations. I'm into my leather flight jacket. I think I had a I had an A6 patch on. And um, so this guy goes, "Hey, are you you an A6 guy? Yes, sir, I am." He said, uh, "Oh, you know, um, are you uh, you are you like coming or going?" I was like, "No, I just got out of the rag and I'm I'm going to my squadron." He said, "What, what squadron are you going to?" And I gave him the squadron, and he said, "Oh, you're going to F Troop. Remember that show?" Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Wow, really?" And it didn't feel like it when I got there. I mean, you know. This, well, I, I remember F Troop, but yeah. how is that? Like, you're, like essentially, like you're going to the worst squadron in the fleet. 
the worst uh, A6 squadron in the fleet. You know, a bunch of yahoos, knuckleheads, okay. or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So he was painting the context for you that, oh, yeah. you're going to be one of them. Yeah, right, exactly. And I'm like, well, that wasn't really nice, you know, but whatever. And, you know, I, I'm an ensign. I, oh, by the way, I was a fleet ensign, right? So I'm not in the Navy two years, and I'm, I'm headed to my fleet squadron, and I, I hear this, you know, chucklehead, you know, talking about the guys that I'm getting ready to go fly with. Um, but, you know, that, that following year, based on what happened, you, you could have called us that. And so I think after the second one, and, and it, it, it hit me hard for two reasons. Number one, I, the, 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 the pilot was someone that I, I had a lot of flight time with. I mean, I probably had a third of my flight time in the A6 with this guy. A lot with of, him? Yes, yes. So that was number one. Number two, um, it was a, um, uh, we have what they call a bombing derby, right? So every squadron in the Navy, or A6 squadron, you know, you, um, you have to launch out on a mission um, at night, low altitude. You have to identify every target. So they, they grade all of your targets along the way. And, you know, you have to put a bomb on the pickle barrel at 10 o'clock straight up. So that was a mission. So we were uh, the tanker for them because it was a pretty long mission. So we tanked them. So all four of us are in the locker room. So you when know, you say you were the tanker for them, you were, you were flying at a I higher was flying, altitude. Well, no, I was, well, I was in a, so it was a two ship to go out. Okay. We, me and my new pilot were in the tanker. We put the hose out. We give those guys, you know, more gas so they can go on a longer mission and fly all the way around a bunch of states to come back and end up at the target complex. So imagine an NFL locker room, you're all putting on your gear, you're laughing and scratching, all four of you are together, you get in your airplane, they get in their airplane. So we were basically the last guys to see them that night. Mm. So, so that was, you know, came home and sobbed like a baby. Um, uh, and then just had to, had to get on with it. So what is, what does the commanding officer say to everybody at that point? Oh, um, well, there's a safety stand down for sure. Um, and you know, we're not going to say anything until we understand exactly what happened. Um, and then the only thing I can remember is, is that you have, uh, folks that will come in from the wing from the medium attack wing to look at all of your, your policies, your procedures, and your processes to make sure that you're doing things the way you're supposed to be doing them. Now, um, to be fair, for lack of a better word, um, I'm getting real specific here, but there was a software change made on our radar altimeter that would keep it going if you busted through your assigned altitude. So in the, in the old, Prior to the, the mishap, if your radar altimeter was set for 500 feet, when you hit or went below 500 feet, it, you would get the deedle deedle, but then it would stop. Mm. So if you didn't get back above 500 feet, you could hurt yourself. Basically, so, it was a false communication from the software. Yeah. Well, well, just the software was maybe improperly designed. So like in the F-18, um, your radar altimeter, you know, Betty comes up and says, altitude, altitude, and she doesn't stop until you either 
lower your altitude or get above your, the altitude you have set in. So same thing here, you know, if, if that altimeter signal had continued to go off, they would still be here today. So that's got to scare you a little bit. It's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a mental challenge. But, but there comes a point where, you know, when the engines come on and the radios crack, you're, you're about, back to business as much as you can be. So what did you walk away with after that period of time? For six well, months? Th that goes back to my, my original, what did you learn? Five, let's talk about those guys. 5,500 hours, you know, two of the best in the squadron, knew more about the airplane than I ever would. No matter what you know, no matter how good you are, no matter how much time you have, no matter how much experience you have, you can still hurt yourself. That was those guys. I mean, we could obviously sit here and talk flying all day as it yeah. related to your experience. Yeah. But, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to, to brag on your son a little bit. <laughs> you, um, you have a very unique position in that you influenced Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You influenced Hollywood because your son directed the movie Devotion. Yep. What, what did you know or not know about that story going in? Embarrassing. Not as much as I should have. I think I, I, think I saw Jesse um, in a, on a display at the Smithsonian or something to that nature. Jesse being the, Jesse, the pilot Jesse Brown. who this is yeah. based on. Yeah, exactly. And Tom Hudner. No idea. No idea. I, I, I wasn't either. I was not familiar with it either. And, uh, and as, as the, the movie, uh, I think, does a very good job of, of framing up the forgotten war. Yes. Korea is, is very much of a forgotten war. I, I'd say not as much for, for the Marine Corps because we had some unbelievable stories That's come right. out of that. But That's certainly right. for naval aviation, y'all weren't as involved in it. Right. And I think it's important to point out for, for people who haven't seen it, Brown was an African-American pilot. Mm -hmm. The first. The first mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, in first to get his wings in, uh, in naval the aviation. Navy. Yep. Um, Hudner um, went on to receive the Medal of Honor. Yes. And so right there, and, he, and he's... Uh, and I don't and thought he was going to get court-martialed, oh, by the way. I don't know that I understood that. Yep. Why, why did he Because think he, he crashed his airplane willfully. Ah, that's right. That's he right. crashed okay. his airplane willfully. But that wasn't that wasn't really brought up in things. Because, no, no. But, and, yeah. and, and I think that's what I really liked about, uh, you know, about the movie. Not that I'm a Siskel and Ebert guy, <laughs> but I really liked the way your son painted things. Not it wasn't overly dramatic. It was very. Yeah, this is what it is. Yes. And there was a scene. And again, like you, I don't want to give it away. Sure. Towards the end, you're expecting this 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 kind of reconciliation, this kind of. You know, for you know, for the, his antagonist, uh, right. for for Jesse Brown's antagonist, you're expecting them to all of a sudden Hollywood. Well, high had, five, everything's yeah. okay. And no, that, and that no. never came. And I no. was I was actually very pleasantly surprised to see right. that because it was I think it was more real because that I doesn't agree. happen in a movie that happens over time. It, right. And 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 I will to give him a lot of credit. Um, he, he, JD was very purposeful. And, and how that story was, was depicted. You know, th these were two men um, who were thrown together uh, in very challenging circumstances, not just in Korea, but also back home, mm -hmm. you know, and, 
and somehow, you know, naval aviation, regardless of where they're from, one guy's from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, other guy's from Rhode Island, you know, the Navy, naval aviation brought them together, which, it, which is what it does. And I, and I, I think what I, the other thing I really liked is, is how, how much emphasis it put on the importance of trust. Oh, yeah. And mutual respect. Yep. Over like and love. Yep. And I thought, I thought that was framed really, really well. Right. So I know that you advised your son mm -hmm. as it relates to the, to the movie. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I will give away is uh, when, when Jesse Brown is landing on the aircraft carrier for the first time, he's, mm -hmm. he's getting his qualification for the F4U Corsair yep. for a, a carrier qual. Yep. That was an intense scene. Okay. <laughs> was it really? I, for some reason, that, that was just very intense. Yeah. How did you, how did you advise him on that, that, that he was able to create that intense feeling? You know what? I, I, I'm actually going to, the, the credit for that is going to go to Jonathan Majors. Okay. He, he, he um, I, I just think that he, the, the actor playing, the actor playing you know. Jesse Brown, um, that is very hard to articulate. Uh, and, and I guess the, the way I would explain it is you, you're, and this is not the, the Corsair, but in, you know, in our life, uh, and, I, and I probably have you know, described this to JD at some point, but um, you know, you're, you're, you're flying at 130 miles an hour, and in 400 feet, you're at zero. You know, so you're, you're leaning in your straps, you're leaning forward, your straps are digging in your shoulders, uh, and in about a second and a half, you're back, and now you're looking over to the to the right to figure out where you're going to taxi. Um, and it happens that fast. It happens that fast. Yeah. The only thing I can say uh, again, I, I, I've never saw, seen myself, you know, taking a trap, but I think, especially at night, I think you're just so busy, you know, flying the airplane, you're just. It, it's kind of emotionless, right? And then you get out of the jet, and again, especially at night, daytime is pure fun. At night, you get out of the airplane, you try to get off the flight deck as fast as you can, you go downstairs, and, and then you look up and you're shaking. You're like, man, what, what the heck just happened? What did I just do, right? And, and as the bombardier navigator, um, you know, I'm doing all the radio communication, and I'm reading out vertical speed to the pilot so that he understands that he's not coming down too fast or, or too slow. So he's got his scan going. I'm giving him vertical speed indication uh, until, we, until we touch the deck. So you're working. So there's no time to be emotional. <laughs> How hard is that to, to understand that, hey, I don't have that control. I got to trust in him. Yeah. Um, two things. Number one, you get over it pretty quickly. And number two, if things get really bad, you've got this little handle between your legs. That you can pull and and step step away. <laughs> of course, you might want to communicate to that <laughs> to him before you do it. <laughs> well, you know, and the other thing too is, uh, and again, you'll you'll identify with this. Um, you know, crew coordination is paramount, right? And so there's there's a lot of back and forth. There's a, there's a lot of communication uh, going on. So you're you're not two individuals, you know, sitting in the same airplane. I mean, you are a team. You know, you are one with the airplane and, and with each other. So, um, but funny story um, or f interesting point, um, 
JD had an opportunity to fly with the Blue Angels. And he, so when he got back, you know, and he, listen, he's not a, you know, he's not a 30, well, he is a 30 something years old, but, you know, not in the kind of shape that the guys on the team right. are, obviously. So, you know, the G load for them is, is pretty easy. He's, he was working pretty hard, but I give him credit, you know, 7.2 G's twice didn't pass out. So he's still my son. 7.2 G's? Twice. Twice? Yeah. But he did have a suit on. He, no, he did not. He did not have a suit. No, on. and the, the team walks you through, you know, the, the the physical maneuver that you have to do when you're pulling G's. So he did great. I mean, he had a he had a he had a great time. So, one of the things that um, that we do uh, with carry the load is we want to make sure that we are keeping the memory alive of those people who never got to take off the uniform. And obviously, you served with a few of those. Yep. And so we always encourage everybody to have a very good answer to the question. <laughs> Who are you carrying? A um, little bit of a twist for me. Um, there's an organization called the Blue Angels Foundation, and I am a board member. Um, the, the organization is run, it's all volunteer, nobody gets paid, and it's run by former Blue Angels. Um, and our mission is to support wounded veterans. Uh, and get them the best care that they can absolutely get. And we help fund some of that. And we partner with certain organizations around the country that have been identified and that have the, um, the empirical data to show us that they can take care of veterans. And we're trying to do three things. Uh, number one, uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, we want to address that. Uh, and we want to address it because it also leads to suicide. So post-traumatic stress uh, and suicide prevention. And the third thing, which really kind of started as being the first thing, is transition. So uh, the example would be Freedom Station in San Diego. So Freedom Station is a place that you go, whether, you're, whether you're, you're, um, your ailment is mental or physical, you can go to Freedom Station and learn how to transition. I am massively passionate about, and we talked about this a little bit, military folks or veterans transitioning to corporate America. Um, it is one of the toughest things I've done in my life. Um, I was lost, I was aimless, I didn't know who to talk to, had no mentors. Um, thank God I had a, a wife and a family supporting me at home, but I had no idea where to go. So this is one organization, but everybody does it. Uh, we partner with uh, uh, American corporate partners. And so what they do for us is they identify veterans that are thinking about getting out and they will assign them a mentor based on the industry they want to get to. So as, as, it, as it relates to a lot of things you talked about, a lot of people will hear a lot of the stories, mm -hmm. the challenges that, you know, that, that even you and I have professed mm -hmm. today coming out of the military and, and their thought process would be, that's, that sounds like a very victimized group. Why, why would I want my son to go through that? Why would I want to go through that personally? What do you say to them? You can't begin to describe the level or the feeling of accomplishment to be in a, being on the ragged edge and being the absolute best you can be, both physically and mentally. The friends you will make for the rest of your life um, the relationships that you will have for the rest of your life, the lessons that you will learn that you can apply 
in just about any life situation. Um, I, to your earlier point, I would not trade that for the world. Not for the world. Regardless of all the challenges that you've no, faced. No, challenges make you better. They just make you better. It's all worth it. Absolutely. It's all Absolutely. worth it. So, Bruce, thank you very much. This was I've, fun. I have this thoroughly enjoyed uh, sitting down talking with you. Thanks for having me. My congratulations to your son. Thanks. Uh, the movie was fantastic. Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus. <laughs> Shameless plug. Paramount Shameless Plus. Pl hey, <laughs> you, can, you can rent it through Apple. Uh, if this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.